you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. There are, of course, many places across our world where, regardless of the terrifying tales, people still attempt to explore. And where venturing to is often a treacherous task. Locations that have lured humans for thousands of years into the open clutches of Mother Nature. And, perhaps, unknown forces. The Nahani Valley is a beautiful, remote, 470,000 hectare expanse of ancient and mysterious wilderness, where countless men have both vanished and met grisly, bizarre ends. It is a place where it's believed ancient spirits can be heard wailing through the trees, where ghostly echoes of violent past walk the canyons and forests at night, and where mysterious beasts are said to roam, undetected by the outside world. Despite these legends, countless men have ventured into the valley in search of their fortune, fame, and adventure, only to vanish without a trace. Those who returned brought back stories leading to its name today, the Valley of the Headless Men. Join us on Into the Portal for a trip to the Great White North and a mixed bag discussion of murder and high strangeness in the Headless Valley. Hello, everyone. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. Welcome back into the portal, your gateway to the bazaar. <laughs> yeah, what's up, everybody? Welcome. Thank you so much for your patience on this episode because mm-hmm. it's uh, it's been a bit of a, a busy month for us, so it took a hot sec to, to get this one done, but we're really excited to talk about the topic of today. Mm-hmm. Canadian story. Canadian story, indeed. It was actually suggested uh, by a friend on Facebook, Brennan Carey, who's mm-hmm. always super active on there. So that's awesome. So thank you so much for that suggestion. And if you guys want to make a show suggestion, episode suggestion, like hit us up on the socials for, cer- for sure, because we need more ideas. Oh, yeah. We've been getting lots of good ones in too, actually. So we've got Definitely. some banked up, but we're always looking for more. Always looking for more. And the, okay, well, I guess we should just, we should just mention what we're getting into here right off the bat, because we're delving into sort of uncharted territory still even today. And this is the Nahani Valley, 
or the Headless Valley, as it's become known. Amber's sort of shaking her head back and forth as an uncharted. It's like, well, pe- people have certainly been through there. I, I don't know to every single nook and cranny because people still yeah. get lost even today. Oh, very true. You can go on expeditions, though. There's a, there's a burgeoning tourism uh, sector up there. And so. I so badly want to go. Me too. And, and, and you ha- but it's obviously really extremely tough to get there. These tours, it's like whitewater rafting or flying into crazy yeah. remote destinations. And it is pretty intense. you got to be prepared. Mm-hmm. So this place, the Headless Valley, the Nahani Valley, and I'm going to say, like, there may be a slip up in the pronunciation, but so far, so good. So far, we're doing pretty good. But it's become known as the Headless Valley. It's located in the Northwest Territories, just at the corner, this meeting place between the uh, BC, our province, our home province, the Yukon, and the Northwest Territories, which is the home to several different mysterious beasts and creatures that we've actually mentioned on past episodes that might come up in this one as well. (laughs) But this is an extremely ancient place which is obviously our bread and butter because we're getting into some some legends from the past for sure. And the first human occupation of this area is goes back a long, long way. At bare minimum, nine to 10,000 year, years ago, likely much, much further according to some other sources. So there's evidence of prehistoric human habitation found at a whole bunch of different sites. Um, one prominent one is Yohin Lake, and there's other sites within the park where that shows ancient human habitation. So people have been there for a long time, and there's stories that some may even remain. But <laughs> it, it's hidden between th- this area we're talking about today is more or less hidden between the Mackenzie Mountains and the Sel- Selwyn Range, as it's known. And the valley itself stretches about 200 miles, carved out through extremely rough terrain, a river system that flows through the valley. And actually, there's more than one valley, but we refer to it as singular. And this place is supposedly haunted by mysterious spirits. There's possibly beasts that are undiscovered lurking in the trees, headhunters, ghosts of people long forgotten, and so much more. So that is what we are exploring today. The South Nahani, just to kind of give you guys more of a paint a picture here to be the, do, do the Bob Ross here. The South Nahani is this like massive, spectacular uh, river that actually ends up falling into like waterfalls that are twice the height of Niagara, which is kind of insane. Uh, 1500 foot deep gorges in this place. So you can kind of picture it. It's like, I'm picturing like the lost world, more or less. A whole bunch of this information, a lot of what we pulled uh, for this episode today was from this really cool 1947 McLean's article. And for those of you who don't know, McLean's is uh, a Canadian, what would you call it, Amber? I mean, it's, it's just a Canadian history magazine, I guess, pop culture Canadian, magazine. It's a Canadian periodical. Periodical, yeah. but with really good journalism in there, like high level of of professional well, writing and research yeah. and journalism, I would say. It's not of just course. like a tabloid type type deal. Oh, no, no. <laughs> We're definitely not referring to per- a periodical is definitely a uh, highbrow journalism for sure. Yeah, I know. It's definitely yeah. one of those uh, Canadian staples around here that's been around, I don't even know how many, uh, like basically probably since the turn of the 20th century, maybe even before that it was I, established. Yeah, something like that. Because there's very, I remember even we found, I think it was a 1947 McLean's article cover and it had Hitler on it for some reason. Or yeah. maybe it was 1937. That 30, makes yeah, sense. 37. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was, was the Time magazine had had him on the cover as well around yeah, the same time, was, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this one, yeah, 1947. And we love finding archival stuff. It's yeah, awesome. this was a very rich resource for us. It's a very lengthy piece and it's been transcribed. So it's kind of funny because some of the grammar isn't quite correct, but it, <laughs> it does a really good job. And I'm, I'm really excited that we found this resource Me because too. I'm sure we're going to uncover more 
as we kind of go through the years. Because like this, again, this is from 1947. Absolutely. The author of the article, his name was Pierre Berton. And <laughs> so French. So French. I think I did a good job of pronouncing that. There you go. <laughs> he, but yeah, really cool article. We're going to get into so much more. But just to finish off my little description to paint the picture of how this valley looks, it actually includes like several different flat rivers, a whole bunch of valleys, three large canyons, uh, a whole bunch of different tributary creeks that run off of these larger rivers that are both hot and cold running water because there's uh, hot springs, massive waterfalls, running rapids, huge gorges, limestone caves that sort of dot throughout the whole thing. And we love our limestone caves for different reasons on End of the Portal. And just a whole bunch of other kind of crazy breathtaking attractions that are hard to get to. So basically, if you want to be picturing something in your head, just think of any of the scenery from like a Lord of the Rings movie. Pretty much. Like it's it's incredible and it's yeah. it's spectacular the just the depth and like the immensity of what this landscape holds it's really cool and like you mentioned Andrew so they have these tributary creeks that do have hot springs and some of them so they this is why it's kind of like been known as like this lush tropical zone of the north <laughs> almost like a mythical place right like a Shangri La in some cases uh, right. some people have referred to it these romantic writers of the 19th century and 20 yeah. early 20th yeah but that's interesting right because if you're thinking there's hot springs what else is there then there's obviously geologic activity occurring so mm, which we love as well <laughs> Yeah. No, it totally reminds me of um, when we did our Franklin Expedition episode and there was the stories of people thinking that they would go far enough through the ice and if you got far enough north, you would end up in like a tropical water mm-hmm. so it would get warm. Yeah. And that was sort of one of the beliefs about deep in the Nahani. Yeah, that it was this lush tropical wilderness. It is way the hell out there. So it's yeah. no wonder that people like <laughs> ha- came up with these sort of crazy yeah. ideas and stuff. The clo- Mythical connotations, Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. Like literally the closest civilization is a place called Fort Simpson, which is 500 kilometers from Yellowknife, which is pretty far north in in the Northwest Territories. And it's, you know, it's a tiny little community. Mm -hmm. It's located on, actually on an island, right at the confluence of the Mackenzie and the Liard Liard Rivers? Liard Rivers? Mm -hmm. Probably mispronouncing that. Um, but yeah, it's it's way out there. That's the closest place. And there's like not a lot of people there. Like I think yeah. under a thousand people. Historically, an HBC trading post, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so. So it's just a very, it was like a, a place of practicality and necessity and not anything more than that. Because <laughs> yeah. it's basically all the barren land. Not barren, I'm not going to call it barren, but it's a very intense landscape. And when I Googled the images today, it didn't look super not barren. No. I mean, I anyway. <laughs> I digress. We, we digress, yes. Um, but yeah, like Andrew has referred to, there has been human habitation in the Nahani region for thousands of years. And these people are referred to as the Dene people. And they also have these other people here that we've re- come across too, called the Slavi people. Mm-hmm. And these were clans that lived along the banks of the Mackenzie. And again, the Liard, right? So this is historically, these were the indigenous groups that trappers and as i like to refer to them sourdoughs all the yukoners <laughs> going after their gold That's started right. to encounter right as they encroached into these areas and uh, it's interesting because they're referred to as a small but fierce group and there is this other term that we're going to run into here too called the naha so this naha term and nahani is kind of like it means roughly people over there far away as described by Pierre Burton in the McLean's article. And so, again, this brings to mind a lot of mysterious uh, intonations and things like that. But basically, yeah, like this is kind of the name given by these white fur traders to the indigenous people that they encountered. And it's kind of weird because there isn't a lot 
of resources that we can go to. Like if you go to the Naha people now, mm-hmm. and we did actually come across a, a Canadian um, journalist, non-journalist, he's a documentarian who actually went up there and I really want to see his projects. So we're going to talk about that in a sec. But yeah. basically like they had a term, if I'm not mistaken here, the Diné people had that term in their language to refer to other people within yeah. the area. That's what so I it's almost understood. as if there are a few different groups mm-hmm. interacting, which yeah. again leads itself to all sorts of wild speculation as to like what the political, social, cultural arrangements were within this within these groups totally. over the centuries, right? Over the thousands of years that they inhabited the area. Totally. And there are obviously there's a local oral history that contains many references to the Naha tribe. And again, right, we get this reference to like a mountain dwelling people that would raid these lower settlements. So it's almost as if it does remind me of the Solomon Islands, right? Mm-hmm. You have the the beach dwellers, then you have the mountain men. <laughs> and they were very violent and they would go and raid these settlements. And there was a lot of disappearances. There was a lot of violence, a lot of brutal murders and things like that. So again, right, mm-hmm. this area is pocketed by an extreme history. Definitely is. <clears throat> Interestingly, Andrew uncovered this, but I'm going to take credit for it. Yes. (laughs) There are actually present-day similarities between, and this is is not us, this is coming from different sources, Mm -hmm. between the local Diné dialects and Navajo languages of the southern United States. And this has actually led to speculation that the Navajo could possibly be descendants of these missing, quote-unquote, Naha people. Right. Because they are said to not be there anymore. The, the They've legend, kind of disappeared. Exactly. The legend is that they had vanished, mm-hmm. which is much to the, I think, the joy it's, of the Diné because they were constantly being raided by them in their yes, stories and legends. Yes, exactly. So it was kind of this an, um, antagonistic relationship, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And, of course, if you go on the internet and you Google around, you'll see a lot of, like, internet blogs and a lot of people that are talking about um, all these legends and rumors and it's probably been exaggerated over the years but we have no idea what really unless we go and uncover it from the Diné people themselves right which is happening right now so we're really stoked I I actually have it further in the notes we'll talk about it though sure let's get into some of these legends because many of these people actually avoided the area the Nahani Valley because they believed it to be haunted And like you already said, Andrew, there were these rumors spread of ghosts, devils, Mm -hmm. strange creatures of unnatural origins lurking in the forests. And, uh, of course, the Naha people. So there you go. You've got human and non-human forms of uh, danger and terror, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, like, just just to touch on that briefly here, it's like, so this is, yeah, there's multiple scary things to be dealt with here in the Nahani and that's sort of like yeah the basis of the legend is it it's a chicken and the egg situation sort of it's a is are the stories of 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 finding headless men which we're going to get into does it go even beyond the more modern story that we talk about today that is the origin of the name the headless valley because of these like headhunting tribes or whatever these these very aggressive Naha coming down and and maybe cutting off heads and there's yeah blurred into the legend of, of that happening or are the what what are the i guess my question is and i want to get into later on is what are the ghosts who are the ghosts are they the ghosts of the fallen dene from raids of the naha are they ancient spirits in Mm -hmm. the valley that are causing turmoil and 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 things to happen like 
Yeah, what, exactly. what lies in this valley? We'll get into it more. That's a really good thing. And oh man, that does remind me of, because we've been watching a lot of Mystic Britain lately, and it does remind me of uh, some of the customs of the Neolithic peoples over on that end of the world, where mm-hmm. they would do special things to the people that had fallen either violently in like, you know, like um, hunting, yeah. hunting mammoth or things like that. Because they believed that if you died violently, then you could potentially still remain or come back or all that kind of thing. Yes. So. Yeah, maybe these are the the victims of the raids or of other things, right? Because there are sightings supposedly of things like mammoths, of saber-toothed tigers, of all sorts of things that shouldn't be there. Yeah, that's true. And that opens up other uh, rabbit holes for us to go down as well. So. We'll exactly, exactly. And like we're, we already said here, the, the park can really only be accessed by boat or by float plane. So it's like really inaccessible. And this, again, has kind of led to this sort of, I guess, like a mythical perception of Nahani as this Shangri-La, this like, and again, right, once we get into the gold era, the Klondike gold era, this mm-hmm. again just becomes this shiny, like, Beacon. Beacon. Yeah, I guess that's the right <laughs> word. Thank you, Andrew. Yes. Of all of the Klondike people and all the gold gold rush people that were just looking for their, their piece of the pie. Totally. Because there had been so many places, or not so many, but there had been places already that people had gone to, maybe tried and failed, or maybe strikes had been hit. And then Nahani was like this untapped, thought to be this untapped, mm-hmm. partly because it was so remote. It's like, oh, no one's willing to go that far. And then there was the handful of men that were like, well, I will, and I'll get my fortune out of it. And it's like, maybe. <laughs> and if you think about it, too, if it has this exaggerated reputation as, like, this, like, lush tropical paradise in the middle of the north, why the heck wouldn't you want to go there? Well, I know, right? Out of all the areas to go to get gold. You're thinking, <laughs> you know? I'm going to find my gold strike. I'm going to mm-hmm. build a nice shack right on a hot spring. It's going to be warm most of the year, <laughs> even in the winter, even though I'm in the <laughs> Northwest Territories. I can just plunk myself down in my little hot tub out front. I mean, <laughs> well, it doesn't exactly. sound half bad. There was this one description and this was from an Antiquitate article, talked about it, how uh, it described Nahani as, quote, lushly tropical in climate, fed by a network of hot springs, supporting luxuriant growth of rare and exotic species where game is fat and plentiful and the thermometer never hits freezing. <laughs> <laughs> never hits freezing. Oh, like, really? Oh, wow. I want to move there. <laughs> you know, it, it, and like, to some extent, there is reasons why people thought this, but we'll, we'll get into that in a sec. But this was a perfect lead into this next section because the the gold rush era was this time when definitely there was the vast majority of people either meeting a very grisly demise or simply vanishing into thin air. That we have record of. That we have record mm-hmm. of. So, some of them are absolutely bizarre too, like ones, you know, like where you, you should have been found but just weren't as if the land wanted to just take you. And There's, it can. And it can, right? Um, so yeah, there was, there was a few more tidbits that we pulled from this really awesome Maclean's article with Pierre Breton, The Valley of Mystery. So yeah, we're out of the ancient past and heading into modern times. We'll come back to some stories that are, touch on some ancient legends, but really where the, the gruesome stuff begins is, like we said, this search for gold in the aftermath of the real heydays, if you will, of the Klondike gold rush, where prospectors now believed that there was still mother loads to be discovered, particularly at one spot along Bennett Creek, which was a tributary of the Flat River located uh, right smack dab in the valley. This was pretty wishful thinking because there had been very little gold actually recovered in the area, and this is just so classic. This is like the Charlie Mm -hmm. Cluster looking for the ship in the desert story. It's just like people are just like willing to 
risk life and limb for something that's literally almost 0% chance of succeeding. (laughs) Yeah, zero evidence to support. (laughs) Um, But hey, power to you, right? And it was in the summer of 1897 specifically when there was a slew of different newspaper articles that sort of washed over a whole bunch of different cities and locations where word of mouth could then really spread that there were, you know, these neighboring provinces where massive gold strikes were to be found. So... Like we all know, obviously, no time at all, men and women as well from all over the world were just drudging their way up through and trying to get into the Nahani Valley, which was extremely difficult to do. There were different trails that people would take to get to these different northern destinations in the Yukon and the Northwest Territories. One of them, just super grueling, intense, like cross-country overland route, which started in Edmonton, cross-country, I mean cross province but it's still a massive trek right uh this is actually where the the stampede name comes from i think because this is it was like the stampede out of that province so like you know Hmm. 800 ish stampeders as they were known who attempted this this route and then a handful of them actually opted to take a different a different way which was considered just a complete death trap uh even more hazardous which was actually to go south by way of the nahani river Uh uh-oh Although there's stories that at least two out of the however many hundreds actually like successfully reached their destination via this route, there was so many that just completely disappeared. They vanished. They vanished without a trace, just lost in the valley, well, you know. Such a remote territory, you know, and vast, vast it natural is. wilderness with... It is. In that time, too, a lot more natural predators as well. So, you know... Yeah. Things don't stick around after they die. <laughs> That's very true. And they definitely it bled into the stories and, and, and the feeling and the belief about the territory. This is a quote from the article from uh, Pierre Breton. I had to include this because it's awesome. It's, it reads as follows. The stories of death, disappearance, murder, and gold which have been kept which have kept the Nahani and Flat Rivers in the headlines for half a century. You've got to remember this was written in the 40s starts in 1900 when an Indian named Little Nahani, as he described in here, brought a rich gold-bearing quartz sample out to Fort Layard. He claimed to have found it near the mouth of the Flat River, but four years later, a second Indian found gold on a tributary of the Flat, and there was a small stampede that petered out except for the persistence of Willie McLeod who is uh, one of the main figures we're going to to talk to today. And please forgive my uh, antiquated references there. This was the 1947 quote from the article referring to Mm, indigenous people, right? (laughs) (laughs) But this is the the tee up into the most infamous, they're not infamous, but the most infamous... The reason thing that happened really in the valley. The reason we're calling it the Headless Valley, I'd say. One of them. One, One of them. the reasons, yeah, exactly. And this story starts off with three brothers, soon to be two. But the story goes that, like many of these stampeders that uh, Andrew has referred to, they were prompted by these new stories of these flourishing possibilities of gold in the Nahani. Mm. And so they ended up, the three of them, went in search of gold and. So the stories go, they did actually uncover a modest supply. Unlike others, man. They were lucky. Yeah, they, they, they were. were. They, were, they, were not, they were the exception. They were persistent, unlike a lot of people. So they actually ended up getting a modest, I think it, I think it was like a 
bottle filled with gold. They had like a oh, bunch yeah. of it. But anyways, yeah. um, they actually ended up losing it. They were going on, they were on the river, they were traveling to get home and they ended up like getting totally tossed and lost all their supplies, oh, all of no. their finds. So their treasure was lost. And again, yeah, major setback. But two of the three, Willie and Frank, made a return trip. However, their older brother, Charlie, decided to hold back. This is like a, this is a, seriously like a Canadian legend. Like there's poems and songs written about this. Like it's, it's one of those sort of um, frontist pieces, I guess, of oh, yeah. this sort of her- era of history. Mm-hmm. But there's one poem by a guide by the name of Nils Alsfeld, and he described how Charlie's place was actually filled by a third man that was not of the McLeod clan. Mm-hmm. And he said, this is part of the, the actual poem. It says here, his mysterious replacement was a Scottish engineer. They never even knew his name, maybe Wilkinson or Weir. Hmm. Hmm. So the brothers did end up disappearing and were eventually discovered over two years later when their brother Charlie mounted a search party. Um, him along with, I think it was seven others. I could be mistaken. That, according to one reference, that's mm-hmm. that about was, seven yeah. people. They went out on this search party and they discovered the grisly scene of the two brothers, both dead, allegedly. And this is where things get a little murky. Allegedly, they had died of starvation. However, they were both found decapitated. And there was another mysterious clue that was etched into some wood as this poem by Nils Alsfeld goes on to describe. Quote, The bodies were headless, and what was left was rotten. But strangest of all, there was no sign of the Scotsman. The only clue left was carved into the wood. It read, We found a fine prospect, not that it did them any good. As you can see, the MacLeod's deaths are a mystery. Perhaps if we try, we can fill this gap in history. Was the police report right? Did they die of starvation? If that were true, does it explain decapitation? (laughs) (laughs) So this um, starvation sort of claim has been contradicted in other accounts. Um, And there's actually other claims, too, that claim that they weren't even decapitated. So there's a lot of murkiness surrounding this actual, the the facts of this case. Yeah. But some people have suggested murder. Some people have suggested natural causes. However, I will go back to those alleged seven witnesses that were present in the search party when these bodies were discovered. And they all attested to the grisly scene of the grisly nature of the scene, I should mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. and that they were found with their heads off. So uh, interestingly, yeah. too, again, going back to this third man, before the murders, there were other trappers in the areas and hunters that said that they did see this man with the McLeods. Whether or not it was Weir or Wilkinson, the Scotsman, as he was referred to in the poem, yeah. could have been him, could have been someone else. If he was responsible or not, they, he was never heard from ever again. So hmm. just vanished. Exactly. Hmm. It's kind of interesting. You have to wonder if he was taken somehow as well. Well, yeah, that that could be the case too. You never know. Because what are we? So yeah, what are we dealing with here? It's like a potential murder, and if that's the case, it's like wow, this isn't just murder for gold, unless you're extremely upset about something because you would probably just sh- shoot him with a shotgun or stab mm-hmm. him in their sleep. You're not gonna you're not gonna saw the heads off ISIS style here. Like, what are you doing? The only thing that I will say in 
defense of that being a more mundane explanation would be the idea that they had suffered a gunshot wound to the head. Um, The only thing that I will say that will support a more mundane sort of conclusion would be that they could have potentially suffered a shotgun head wound right? and were left for an extended period of time. And obviously, I think the story that I heard was that they were found in their sleeping bags, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. around the fire. And so they were obviously in... Exposed to the elements, which right. means they would have been exposed to any and all animals that would have been coming along to predate on the corpses. So True. birds, for example, would have been picking away at the flesh and, and you know what I mean? And, the the, and wolves wolves could have actually dragged away the head after That's quite a while. possible. They could have. But here's because, my... because the head is the only exposed part when you're in a sleeping bag. So it makes sense that that would be the part that is taken away. And True. it was two years. Two years they were out there, so... You know, that's a long time. Okay, but here's, yeah, no, that's that's totally true. But it's like, that's, there's there's aspects of all those things you're saying in a row that like don't add up together. You know what I'm saying? Because it's like, if what? you're out there for two years, you're going to be relatively decomposed. You're not going to be able to distinguish whether or not it's straight decapitation or not. I don't think. I don't think and they also, did. I don't, I, and also, I don't even think they had a pathologist with them. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's like, it's pretty... I guess at that point, it would be really hard to tell whether a head was sawed off or shot off with a shotgun. No, you can tell by the bone marks. You're telling me these guys could? No, like an expert could. Yeah, well, they didn't have that, did they? So (laughs) this is just guesswork. You would be able to see that, though. You'd be able to see cut marks on bone. Like, that's pretty obvious. Yeah, if you have a magnifying glass and you're going to get down on your hands and knees and clean it off and take a look out in the bush... Well, it's your two brothers. I think I might. That wasn't included in the story. (laughs) But I'm just saying, right, if you want to support a mundane conclusion, the other sort of more fantastical thing we could go along the lines of was it could have been... It could have been a, a ghost from the Nahad coming to, to wreak vengeance. Because, like, for me, I like the idea that when you mess with or enter into an area that you are not familiar with, that you have no place being in mm-hmm. you know you, you you're you're offering yourself up to forces that may be beyond your understanding so right. in that sense like you know the the spiritual and um sinister nature of this place like you know is there is like, there yeah. a basis for that you know what i mean no so, I, I i think that's cool obviously yeah that's definitely the what paranormal is your, angle what's your first line of thought well, i don't know i mean this is this is on its own <laughs> we were saying this before we started to record you guys that like on its own this is just a straight true crime episode like mm-hmm. that to, to dig into and i'm sure there's shows that have done it but we obviously want to go down some other some other rabbit holes and i like that i think that's interesting because that does blur into the legends of the Danae, I think, with, like, the vanishing of the Naha, mm-hmm. but then this long history, hundreds and hundreds of years, I mean, thousands of years of the fear of these people from far away coming and, and taking things from them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, maybe maybe the land is still taking, but it's like, why the head? That's not a part of the, the legends. And we know there's different tribes across North America that would scalp yeah. and take as, like, a trophy. And that's what kind of um, I thought. I thought it was an exaggeration of that tradition, perhaps. Right. Because if you think about it, yeah, like, again, right? Like, yeah, if you're scalping people and leaving them to the elements, again, like, you know, that's prime territory for, like, natural decapitation due to decomposition and animal intrusions into the process. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, it's a very yeah. pleasant thing to talk about. Right. But well, why don't we try to just stack up some more headless bodies here then to... Uh, 
Let's just pile them up. <laughs> Speaking of pleasant things to talk about. Yeah. Because we can, uh, there, there's a few other names here that are fairly prominent in the story of the Headless mm. Valley. Yeah, and I will just say, just to tee this up a little bit, this next character is someone that kind of breaks the mold of imagining the Nahani as a place where few and far intrepidors kind of come into because this guy actually established himself for years and years, if not decades, in the area. And he was one of those guys that interacted with a lot of people that eventually went missing. Why don't you just, you're already talking about it. Let's just, why don't you just get, <laughs> hop into a cool well, field here? He was one of those guys, like I said, right? He was one of the first white men to really establish himself in the Nahani Valley. And he did have ties to a trading post that he operated in the area of Ross River. And this was for years and years. He, there still to this day is probably the remnants of a trail of cabins that he had left along the banks of the Nahani, Nahani sorry. That would be cool. And to go the visit. flat rivers. I know, right? It kind of reminds me of when we're passing through uh, Rock Creek and we see the river with like all those ones that are literally look like they're about to fall in because mm-hmm. they're like right on the edge of the bank. And Lost you can like Jolly see, Jack, man. You can literally see into the um, what's it called? Like the inner like foundations <laughs> yeah. and stuff. It's oh, insane. Yeah. But Poole was, like I said, involved with many that came into the valley. And he unfortunately was one of those guys that was on many occasions one of the last to hear from these unfortunates that would meet grisly fates on the banks of the Nahani River and Liard and, and just throughout Dubious the valley. indeed, some might say. So again, right, it's like, who is this guy? And if you're... He's an interesting character to me, and I think he is ripe for uh, fictionalization because he seems like one of those guys that would be crafty and he would know his way and he could perhaps even be a little manipulative. Maybe he was involved with some of these disappearances. You never know. Well, he does have ties to some pretty grisly stuff, like you said. said. Yeah, And this one in particular, this Martin Jorgensen case that I will mention here, Mm -hmm. this actually occurred nine years after the McLeod brothers had their unfortunate demise. And this Martin Jorgensen, he was a prospector again, had a lust for gold. He had kind of established himself in the Nahani area, apparently found gold. So the story goes that he sent a message to Poole Field over on the Ross River that he had, quote, struck it rich. Hmm, this is where things get a little murky. Mm -hmm. Field allegedly came over to see Jorgensen's find only to find his cabin had burned to the ground and Jorgensen himself had been shot, allegedly from a distance. But the weirdest part was all that remained of Jorgensen was his headless skeleton. Hmm. So he was inside the cabin that burned to the ground. He was missing his head entirely. So again, right, he's not exposed to the elements. He had just sent the message. It's not like he's been missing for years. And then he's found like in a series of destruction. Yeah. Stripped. No gold was found. Hmm. And uh, and Pool Field was the one to find him. So that's Headless skeleton is a funny description. Well, funny. Is it weird? That's a weird description. Well, his, his body was burned. There's only bones left. Right. Yeah. So like that, just not, no, no, nothing. Just, just, nothing. that's just, yeah, just a very Burn. unfortunate. Because again, right, this speaks to the idea of like getting rid of evidence. Possibly. Uh, and, and again, I would also say he could have been decapitated to hide the bullet evidence that was lodged in his skull. Because if they did extract that bullet and found whose gun it belonged to, then obviously there's not a lot of people in the area, so there's not a lot of suspects. See, like when there's gunshots <laughs> so, involved, that obviously takes away from the more of the paranormal element of it, except for the fact that it's just 
Oh, yeah, because he had been shot from a distance. So, again, that makes me think the bullet must have still been present. Must have. Must have been lodged in his, like, his chest. Now that I'm thinking about it a little bit further here. I mean, it's just like, it's just bad. Yeah, like this, this is just a story of like, of bad luck and murder. I mean, I think. But the question is, is the, does the valley itself, which I think we've seen in other, other places and cases where it's like, does it, it turns people, perhaps. I mean, that's even if even just for a small little nugget of gold, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, that he's not alone, obviously, Martin Jorgensen. The interesting part, though, about his case was the decapitation element. And, yeah. Again, we're talking like this is 1917, so the stories that were written about this kind of did dovetail with the sort of mysterious circumstances of the McLeod. So whether or not that was kind of like embellished and added in later, I think is that's kind of one of those things that's possible. up for debate. Yeah, but there was more later on, though, right? Like a few years after this, so this was 1917. This last one we just mentioned, like a decade later in 1928, there was once again, like most of these people don't get found. Just so ever, just just mm-hmm. to, just to reiterate again, it's very similar to almost like uh, the horrors at Portlock, the Alaska one, where people just go out and never come back. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, it's rugged country, but these are rugged people. So it is a little strange, some might say. But 1928, they fa- uh, there was a discovery of uh, another trapper whose bones were found. He There was three, actually a story of three particular trappers that disappeared into the valley. Um, and then, yeah, they were, they, they found them years and years later, but it was like inex- sort of inexplicable why they never made it back. It's like as if the land just took them. Um, hmm. You know, 1947, which is actually kind of funny because that's the year the article that we've been referencing was published. Mm-hmm. There was a miner named Ernest Savard who allegedly was found headless in his sleeping bag mm-hmm. uh, near a river's edge where he was camping. Yeah, and so sleeping bag element kind of makes me think like, well, if you only have your head exposed and you're in the wilderness for years, like... Yeah, but okay, fair enough. But it's like, that's like a pretty lazy... Here's the, here's the thing with that. It's like your head sticking out of a sleeping bag. Okay, <laughs> bear, wolf, sure. It's right there. It's like a lollipop sticking out. But sleeping bags are very easy to rip open. You're going to eat the whole thing. You're not just going to pluck the head and piece the scene. Well, that's even, I'm just thinking more so birds. Like birds would be like... Yeah, but landing. why did he just die peacefully in his sleeping bag then? That's weird. That's like he the ghosts then sucking the life right out of you, and you're just chilling there to be devoured by the land. I'm thinking I'm thinking a lot of these people probably were victims of eating the wrong thing, too. Ooh, that's Getting a, poisoned. Like, even, what was that, Into the Wild, that movie about the guy yeah. that went into the, yeah, anyways. He, he ate just, the wrong mushrooms. He just ate the wrong ones, and you know, that, stuff like that would happen all the time, I would imagine. There's a lot out there that could kill you. And if you're already in a weakened state, then something else could potentially happen to just do you in. But so the, the so three people together, that's interesting to me. Yeah, three that, trappers vanishing together. Yeah. And then there was, yeah, so this was decades later that Ernest Savard, he was a miner that was found dead. So that's kind of weird to me. There's a lot of people, so some of these people aren't very qualified to be going out into the wilderness, I don't think. Even though a miner, you, like, you know, you're dealing with all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah, it's true. Out of midgen back in the day. And if you're a miner too, that actually gives you more qualifications because you can look at a geologic feature and probably establish whether or not you're going to find veins of gold or other valuable minerals in there. I wonder if people even had those skills back then. Some, oh, hell some, yeah. Are you kidding me? Not to the extent of today, obviously, because you I would imagine a lot of it would have been intuitive. Like, you know what I mean? Mm, Which dowsing. might have been even better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was another character, though, that I wanted to bring up, too. Oh, this is my favorite character yeah. here. Well, a favorite, just because of the name. Well, yeah. <laughs> Sourdough Jack. <laughs> Sourdough Jack's 
uh, Stanier. Stanier, yeah. I, for, for a second, I typed it, or, well, before when I was doing the notes, I wrote it in a stainer. But I thought <laughs> it would, Sourdough Jack Stainer, that would have been a name, quite the name. Yeah. Anyway, it's not. It's Stanier. <laughs> <laughs> you want to lead into this? Well, sure. Yeah, so Sourdough Jack there, he was determined to find the original stake of the McLeod's claim. I always look at that and say McLeod, because <laughs> it just looks like that to me. McLeod. McLeod. But he did approximately, I think it was just under 10 trips. He made five trips up the river by boat, and he actually did four more by plane. And he did actually find the original stakes on Bennett Creek, but he didn't find any gold. No, no mother load to be found. Mm-hmm. So interestingly enough, he did actually uncover evidence of, not of the murders, but of the McLeod's too. And uh, he found their rusty pan and a shovel. So again, maybe they were murdered with a shovel. <laughs> Can you believe he was poisoned with a shovel? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh. Stanyard's findings did revive interest in the valley in the following years. And so there were a lot of people that started to just like, again, right, it's the call of the wild. People want to like have their two bits and go out there. And Mm -hmm. we're up to 1947 now. There was two men in particular that were mentioned. And this is interesting because one was American, one was Canadian. They had kind of competing interests as far as like searching for like treasures and stuff. But one in particular, Frank Henderson, who was the American, he was actually going up there to find his partner that had gone missing. Hmm. So interestingly... He actually formed like a coalition of ex-U.S. Marines and he actually put in advertisements in the Vancouver periodical to like attract more volunteers to bring with him. So this is kind of interesting. This is like the the classic, like, you know, like people just like literally sending in hundreds and hundreds of letters to these people. Mm -hmm. So it was Tom Carolyn and Frank Henderson. I never actually recovered any sources that said Carolyn ever went to the valley, but supposedly Frank Henderson did, and apparently he never found his partner. But he did find some quartz and some gold that he found in the bottom of a creek. So, Thirty ounces—that's not so bad. Well, is that a lot? Like I'm trying to picture what that is. I mean, right in today, I mean, like I mean, how- 30, it depends. Like obviously, coarse, like thirty ounces of coarse, like unrefined. Like I don't know what you would actually get out of that. Thirty ounces of pure gold is a lot. Mm-hmm. Is it? Okay. Well, he. I guess he made the most of his time there because, or unless he murdered his, maybe he murdered his partner. <laughs> everyone just goes there and murders everyone and gets like a half-assed amount of gold and then comes back and that's, 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 that's your, just it. That's yeah. how you're summing up the, the headless valley He's like, here. well, 30 ounces is better than 15. <laughs> I'm not splitting this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we shouldn't be laughing. Uh, honestly, yeah, well, yeah, we shouldn't be. I mean, I think, I think enough time's passed. I think I think I think it's been enough time to laugh at that. But yeah, I mean, I want to get into some weirder stuff here because there's claims and stories of much stranger things. Like we've mentioned a couple, mm-hmm. but I want to get back into the idea of a lush tropical world in a hot second. Yes, a place beyond time. Yes, possibly mm-hmm. because if you're just thinking regular old wolves are yanking the heads off uh, some of these guys in sleeping bags, think again. Mm-hmm. Think again, everyone. <laughs> Uh, but before we do, we have a, uh, we're going to take a hot sec for an ad break and stay tuned patrons because you're getting your shout outs. Hey everyone. It's me, Andrew off the cuff, betterhelp.com ad spot coming at you. 
Um, you know, I feel like some of these ad spots have maybe been a little bit on the downside over these last few uh, months that we've been doing these. And, you know, to be expected, I think these days, right? It's been a weird year, like we've been saying a whole bunch of times. But you know what? It's not always just about getting help when you're really down. Getting linked up with a professional and licensed counselor can do so much more. You know, talking with someone could help you reach that next level in your life that you've been trying to get to, or maybe lead to your next breakthrough idea. It can definitely help you out. The point is, regardless of your situation, having someone to chat or to vent to is awesome. It feels great and is good for your body and mind. And we here at Into the Portal want you guys to feel the best you possibly can. So, if you think you could benefit from chatting with a professional licensed counselor, regardless of your situation, please check out betterhelp.com portal. And if it's right for you, use discount code portal, P-O-R-T-A-L, for 10% off your first month. So hop on there, you guys, to get matched up with the best fit for you. You can communicate anytime in any way you want that works best for you as well. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com portal. Thanks, everyone. And we are back. All right. Well, before we get into more of this headless craziness, <laughs> we just wanted to give a shout out. We've had a lot of support coming in recently into our Patreon community, and it's yeah. just been so incredible. Amazing. We are so, so thankful for yeah. all of you guys. Like, we've had Mike Doreen, we've had Scott Barber, Lori Alexander, Carson Raycraft, Dan Crema. Thank you so much, all yeah. of you guys, Thank for you guys. pledging your support. We are so excited to be offering like ad-free episodes for anyone. A dollar and up, you're going to get ad-free apps from here on out mm-hmm. on Into the Portal's Patreon feed. We've got some really fun stuff because like we've held off on putting out our mail-outs because we were waiting on a few things to come in the mail yeah, ourselves. Yeah, some new stuff. Yeah. <laughs> some new merch and things like that. So we're excited to put all those little packages together for you guys and send those out. So look out for those. Like, you know, snail mail has been a little bit slower than <laughs> usual these days. Yeah. So hang tight. But we're just so happy to have everyone join us on this Absolutely. amazing adventure. Absolutely. No, thank you guys so much. And thank you for your patience as yeah. well. Yeah. Because it's been uh, a little bit difficult to get some things uh, completed for Patreon. But like uh, we did a little video for you guys recently and you know that we've got some stuff coming. So thank you for your patience. And uh, it's going to be sweet. We've got, uh, we've got a couple that... We know you're really going to like, so yeah, stay tuned for that. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that was it. You got you ready to get into? We're not quite in theories, but sort of semi. I mean, we're heading into some more weirdness here because so far I think this has been almost like a history true crime episode. Well, we're getting into like the lost world now. Like this is like let's get into this sort of like <laughs> mythological origins and what's really really going on here. Yeah, because I I think. To tie it into the headless part, and I'm air quoting here as I normally do, you guys on on this uh, audio show here <laughs> is that. What could there be out there that's possibly taking the heads or just taking people in general? And there's this belief that Mm -hmm. there was this lush tropical world existing beyond the farthest reaches of the Arctic. This is a a quote from an unknown artist. A tropical valley set in the midst of Arctic wastes is Mm. what it was believed to be. What kind of imagery that conjures up, eh? I know, right? So yeah, hidden deep in the valley, there were these really early legends that it was in fact unlike, completely unlike its cold surroundings that are, you know, all the way over to Yellowknife, right? And actually was still a place housing prehistoric creatures. 
in some sort of lush tropical jungle. And, you know, there's precedence for this in to some extent, although Wrangle Island was a little bit of a colder environment, but that was something we covered on Patreon where there was mammoths living well into the Bronze Age, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. But there were these stories of things like a lost world, like living mastodons living deep in the valley. And the indigenous peoples of the far away, you know, the the far away people, like we mentioned, the Nahani people, Mm -hmm. would often, there were stories of them coming into, at a time when there was some diplomatic relationships, trade with animal skins and things like this, the skins would actually oftentimes have images of these creatures of Mm. a forgotten era. And this is like, I mean, I'm notorious for doing this on recent episodes where I'm just like mentioning past episodes, but this is very similar to like the Australian Bunyip, where there's these uh, indigenous memories, these ancient memories memories of this creature and we're wondering it's like wait a second is it still around mm-hmm. or are these just mm-hmm. or is this just oral tradition ancient memory because there was legitimate stories of prospectors as well running into these creatures so frontiersmen who survived excursions not so deep in the valley that returned from the wilderness that were bringing home ivory tusks with them possibly hmm. even hair and flesh with, with, with like hair and flesh adhered to the bone as if it had just fresh recently been killed so this and these are these are tales from prospectors and front and white men not just indigenous so to some extent like this is pretty crazy right it almost implies like either it really is like this isolated lost world or perhaps like the monster of partridge creek or something there's there's maybe some sort of a transference uh you know we talked about the confluence of the rivers but like maybe there's some sort of a, a coming and goings somewhere oh, deep in the valley or even the falls themselves exactly behind mm-hmm. the falls yeah some it's into of... the portal you guys so yeah. obviously that's where we're going because of course we we <laughs> had this loose mention of the limestone caves yes yes and so that Let's to me i that. love that idea of as a paranormal aspect of the valley here so like deep deep in the valley perhaps there's some sort of a massive cave entrance that acts as some sort of a confluence where perhaps there are these maybe maybe it is an entrance way to another world i don't mm-hmm. know i don't know I will say that there is this particular area, it's called the Plateau, and yes. it's it's located at, the, like, the head of the valley, and that is the place where a lot of this high strangeness seems to be occurring. Right. And so, again, right, we get an elevation, and then, like you said, Andrew, we get these, like, these caves that have been cut out of the limestone, and some people thought that they were formed by erosion of the river, but they seem to have, like, a more marked appearance, you know what I mean? They like, do. were they used in some way, even if they were naturally formed? That's actually yeah, no, that is interesting. It would be honestly the perfect place for a population of Sasquatch to live because it technically is warmer. There's a lot of little microclimates. Yeah, it doesn't get it, it. It doesn't you know break the freezing mark like we said there before. It doesn't like only get to zero and that's as cold as it gets. Like obviously, it gets much colder yeah. than that. But to some extent, this idea of a lush tropical place kind of was true because of these little mini microclimates. It's just been greatly exaggerated, right? Mm-hmm. But <laughs> yeah, one person sees a fern and they're like, "Oh my god, I'm in the jungle." <laughs> I, I love how you said the plateau though because I don't know if anybody here has watched the early 2000s series the lost world which was super cheesy but they are literally trapped on the plateau yeah exactly uh, of the lost world where they cannot escape and all this weird stuff keeps happening to them like time slips dinosaurs crazy creatures whatever it may be right anything and everything but the kitchen sink right (laughs) basically right (laughs) but to come back to the limestone caves i love the the name of this because there's this particular cave system that you that's found in the nahani called the mongol caves Mm -hmm. just a cool name doesn't imply that you know genghis khan was in there with the (laughs) whatever right but it is associated with stories of potential cliff dwellers 
which again ties into the Naha or the mountain dwelling people. And to what extent this, how ancient this goes, because mm. if there's a memory of something before the Naha maybe were what they were and they, it was like a pre like prehistoric humans that were the cave, the cave dwellers, mm-hmm. perhaps violent cave dwellers. Um, this is a quote here, actually. Oh, goodness, I can't actually remember where this is from. This may have been from the McLeans. I'll have to dig it up. But the so-called Mongol caves are on the western side of the canyon on a high plateau. It is possible they were cut out of the limestone, sandstone, and slate by the downward erosion of the river. Mm-hmm. But like you said, Amber, it almost looks distinctly like they've been formed, like formed out by hand or, mm. or modified in some way. And if there was, like, glacial activity in the area, it could have being that essentially the the sides of the valley had deposits of larger rock or boulders and then those could have been plucked and abraded by moving glaciers as well and form these massive holes in the sides that's another thing that can happen i'm not saying that is the case here but it is a possibility yeah so where i'm kind of going with this is (laughs) i'm chuckling to myself because it's kind of crazy right Mm because we're tying it back into the headless stuff and it's like well there's some belief that there was maybe some sort of a very aggressive relic population out there, possibly even Sasquatch-like in some way. Back in the 40s, the area had you know, obviously had its gold rush, right? This had long gone, that had already happened. But over the years, there were stories that came out with native hunters who were still obviously super dominant in the area, who specifically were telling the you know more and more white people who were coming through the area not to go to this place or that place. There were mm-hmm. specific areas where they practically like would not go um but some the stories go that some of these indigenous hunters usually young ones that were hearing these legends of these cliff dwellers or the ancient naha and the stories of the spirits in the valley out of like trying to be badass they would venture into the valley in search of game into the areas where they were told not to but the problem was that even for those who were best suited to for, for this type of survival even these indigenous hunters wouldn't return. Mm -hmm. So this just, again, just added more and more to the legends of something out there taking people. Mm -hmm. And So it's not just the white man. Exactly, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, obviously the tales of evil spirits who haunted the valley, like we've mentioned already. And the reason that that is still prominent is because these indigenous hunters would go out there and they would hear these unearthly shrieks, like echoing through the canyons. And... On on windy nights. So it's like, is it the wind? Is it the screams of ancient lost? Is it the screams of those who have been recently taken? I don't know. It's all spooky, that's for sure. Is it just some sort of natural thing that the actual valley produces itself? Like some sort of acoustic thing? You know what I mean? Right. Which, again, can lead to all sorts of psychological states of mind for human beings that are very Mm -hmm. terrifying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very true. More specifically, though, and this is what I was leading up to, essentially what these things were, were sort of Sasquatch-like, but I'm more relic human is how they were described, of a race of, quote, fearsome, hairy giants who possibly dwelled in these caves that were formed in the canyon walls. And the legends go, this is where it even gets a little crazier, is that they were actually led by a beautiful, pale-skinned chieftess that controlled these primitive mountain men who would allegedly eat anyone who trespassed in their territory, and they wielded large wooden clubs and would kill anyone who messed with them. Um, so Crazy. I don't know if the McLeods had their heads clubbed off by some sort of relic hominid population coming down from the Mongol caves. <laughs> 
but it's still a fascinating aspect of the story of the Nahani and just the weirdness that's going on there. So it had to be mentioned. It had to be mentioned. What do you make of that? I'm not even sure what to make of that. It reminds me of one of those fantastical stories you'd read in those like men's magazines from the 1940s, Right. (laughs) you know, with like the fantastical illustrations of these fearsome creatures all like, you know, under the control of a beautiful like goddess-like creature kind of thing. You know what I mean? But that's interesting though, like this nook. Nook yuk or nook look as look. as they're referred to. I, I yeah, there's a, there's definitely something to that. I would say you know sort of um, an alleged subhuman tribe relic population of some kind that we uh, we've seen across the world, right? I mean, it's kind of like it's orang the Nahani's own orang pandek in a way. Mm-hmm. If you will, and apparently there's actually been sightings of this of this alleged creature, oh, yeah. know, subhuman, um, you know, reported in the vicinities of Fort Layard, um, Fort oh. Simpson, both by indigenous and hunters as well. But it, again, mm-hmm. it just blurs into the same sort of thing like Sasquatch. Do people see it? Is it just is it just stories and people's you know is it imaginations? A, is, it a, is it an echo from a different era as exactly, well? Exactly, it's a potential. Because, you know, like this, Virginia Falls is the falls that we've been referring to this whole time. But right. this could be exactly like you've been saying, like a, a transference point, a confluence or something like that, potentially. Um, but the Dene spoke, just sorry, just to finish that off, like the Dene told stories of these cave dwelling or mountain dwelling violent people. Yeah. And whether it was the Naha only and exaggerated or whether or not could, there could have been cave dwelling cannibals like from way more ancient memory told by the Dene. Well, that, again, makes me want to get a hold of this Canadian filmmaker, Mark McPherson, who is actually, he's he's been, he's obtained permission to record the stories of Dene elders in the Nahani region, mm-hmm. and he is in the progress of coming up with his own uh, documentary on it, and it's called Secrets of the Naha. It's an adventure documentary. Sorry, Nahani. Sorry. Not Naha. But um, I think because, like, most of the times when you come up, when you're looking into this kind of thing, you come up blank with a lot of resources and things like that mm-hmm. when we're talking about this type of history because it is so oral. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's why, like, this quote here, for this is from a different article, it says here, A few miles upstream, the Nahani tumbles 360 feet over the spectacular Virginia Falls. There are said to be cliff dwellings in this area, but this has only been vaguely substantiated. <laughs> um, so it's like, you know, it kind of... Yeah. It, it, yeah. Vaguely substantiated sums it up is what you wrote below there, and I think that's correct. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, yeah, and I agree with that. It's, but I'm not yeah. saying there's not nothing to it. I'm saying that it's just not a lot of resources out there because a a lot of the times these people to preserve the integrity of their history, they don't go about just widely publicizing it all over the place. It's some it's a respect type thing mm-hmm. and. The fact that this guy, Mark McPherson, has obtained permission is really cool. And, you know, like, it's obviously a work in progress right now, but we should check back on his Indiegogo link in a few... Probably in about a year, I'd say, because he started the project, I think, in 2017, but it was stalled significantly because of COVID and all this stuff. So, Of course. But he, um, I'm sure he would come up with some stories related to our next sort of line of thought here, the Wahila. And we have mentioned this before on the show, mm-hmm. and I actually did not put two and two together. It's crazy. The Wahila actually hails from the Nahani Valley. Yeah. It's supposedly native to the area. Yeah. And that is actually like, I was like, mind blown. Are you kidding me? Because like you you hear about the Wahila all the time. Like for us, like obviously in the field that we research and things like that. 
But the Wahila was actually first introduced into sort of like the paranormal canon, I guess you could say, by Ivan Sanderson. So we should say what it is, just to be just just in case anyone out there doesn't know right off the top of their head too. Like essentially, the Wahila. Well, it's it, like a dire wolf, essentially. More or less. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. basically what it is: is a giant white wolf that lives in the Nahani Valley. It's a supernatural creature, and he actually named it the Wahila after another mysterious wolf-like creature that was said to sort of inhabit the area of northern Michigan. Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. kind of took that. It's not as if Wahila is a native term in itself. No. It's an anglicized term that has been applied to supposedly the creature that resides in the Nahani Valley. Right. And the story gets a little more interesting here because there was an associate of Sanderson's, a guy by the name of Frank Graves, and he was actually, if I'm not mistaken, I think he was like a mechanic from Philadelphia. <laughs> actually, yeah, he totally was. He was from Philly. Yeah, no, yeah. for sure. Bone race on the playground. Sixers fan. Most of my days. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, yeah, Frank Graves, he was very inspired by Sanderson's book. Um, I believe it was, oh, which one was it? He wrote so many books. But anyways, he read one of his books and he stumbled across the story of the Wahila. And mm-hmm. he wanted to go and have his own adventure and see if he could have his own encounter. So he traveled to the Nahani plateau and this was actually in conjunction with four others i think it was an american expect expeditionary society it was sort of led yep. coalition mm-hmm. and he the whole coalition was actually put together by sanderson so basically frank graves got a hold of sanderson asked him about the best way to go about this he was connected to the expeditionary society and then they all went up there as a crew of five i believe if i'm not mistaken i think so So what happened was they actually established a camp uh, deep in the Nahani Valley, right at the base of the Virginia Falls. So they were right in that area. And from there, Graves made several expeditions on foot. The entire time he was accompanied by a, quote, Indian guide, so an indigenous person, Mm -hmm. to help him. And basically, this is what happened. He was on the plateau by himself when his native guides allegedly left to go get dinner for them. This is when the encounter occurred. Essentially, what he saw was something that he first took to be a polar bear. It was that massive in size. And clearly, it was it was white in color. Yeah. When he looked closer, however, this is a quote here from Mysteries in Canada. When he looked a little closer, however, he saw that it looked more like a giant dog. It stood up on long legs, more like a dog or a wolf. It had a wide, flat head and rather short ears. Graves panicked and fired both barrels of his shotgun at the creature, but the animal hardly seemed to notice. (laughs) It turned and slowly wandered back into the forest. With shaking fingers, Graves slipped another shell into his weapon and fired at the creature's rear. Amazingly, the animal maintained its leisurely pace as if nothing had happened. So pretty nuts, hey? And allegedly, he was uh, accompanied by his native who heard the shots fired, came to his aid right away. And when he related his experience to his companion, basically the guy was like, let's get the hell out of here. He wouldn't even tell him what it was until they had returned to their boat and had left the area. Once they had reached the safety of the base camp, Graves was actually informed that the animal he had encountered was not an incredibly large wolf, but another animal entirely. And this again is a quote from uh, Mysteries in Canada blog. It says here, These were solitary creatures, not pack animals like gray wolves. They were much larger than wolves, had splayed feet, and had thick, heavy tails. These beasts, the Indian said, were quite rare. Most of them lived further to the north, 
Some of them made annual trips to the Mackenzie Mountains, of which the Nahani Valley is a part. And a few stayed in the Nahani Valley all year round. So Interesting. what was this animal, hey? Pretty so, crazy. Just immediately, what do you think of? Oh, well, I mean, I think of... Does it I remind think, you of anything? Like, it, the, yeah, it reminds me of Skinwalker Ranch. Exactly, yeah. And the wolf totally. that wouldn't die mm-hmm. being shot with the shotgun. Yeah. And, Bizarre. And we actually have that connection, loose connection, right, with the some of the dialect um, similarities with Navajo. Mm-hmm. And so it wouldn't be referred to as necessarily skinwalkers, but there would definitely be some similar figures, I'm sure, in the Dene tradition and some of these northern um, indigenous populations traditions where they're clearly, I mean, maybe not clearly, but like perhaps this encounter here was was with something that was more of a spirit of the valley than anything. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these vanishings and disappearances and stuff like that is kind of just like, it's like a, it's like a toll booth. Of the, mm. of the valley in, in 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 some way you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's um yeah because that's the, the i mean i love that in any story you fire at something and it has no response that's how you know you're in trouble but it's also not coming at you it's not a, it's it's not it's not just gonna eat you like no, right yeah. so it's like so our our speculation that a wahila as a cryptozoological animal could be responsible for yanking and plucking the heads off of some of these characters we've talked about today is is weird it doesn't match up with this it implies that it's a that it's a real flesh and blood animal whereas this story here is 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 very much not mm-hmm. this is way weirder it this, is. this 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 ties into the idea of deep in the valley there's maybe some comings and goings where these things where these things originate from, and there's a reason we don't find them. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say, just to play devil's advocate here, this particular person, Frank Graves, it's very convenient for you to plan this expeditionary force to, in, in all hopes of coming across something supernatural, only to come across something supernatural while you're by yourself. <laughs> you know, that in a sense is kind of like, did you want to just start writing books did you want to just go on a circuit like you know what i mean like there's there's definitely motives to be questioned with this story but i will say that it's it's a very intriguing idea that you know even if frank graves did or did not see this thing the fact that his indigenous companion was aware of like mythical beings or not mythical i will say because he did describe it as an animal and he did describe it as things that migrate to and from the nahani potentially Mm -hmm. so in my mind i'm thinking like is he just thinking this is like a deathly predator or is he thinking that there is something more mythological to it right because we don't really get that full full thing that's true you know what i mean that's true Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's just the very fact that obviously this thing wasn't affected by bullets makes you think that it's supernatural obviously yeah either that or or just like that um the okay corral shootout thing we were watching last night where it's like (laughs) well maybe frank graves because he was so panicked he just didn't aim yeah yeah he just didn't aim properly thought he hit it right even if he had a shotgun you know that's like the easiest thing to aim and fire and actually hit your mark right but he could have potentially just been so terrified but you would expect that an animal would react you know what I mean? If it or was just, shot at. Or just bolt away and it was just like casually striding mm-hmm. away. Like, oh, As if it couldn't even hear him. That to me almost speaks to like Partridge Creek uh, scenario where it's like that monster was just an echo through time. And whoever, I can't remember who the witness was in that story, but they were just 
there at the time that it was happening potentially you know what i mean yeah you know it's funny too like you say like graves and what his motives might be he actually he actually has a tie into the the nook look or nook yuk that i that i we had mentioned before too like when he was there he really went ham bone with like all the weirdness he wasn't just looking for the wahila like he ended Mm -hmm. up interviewing uh indigenous elders in the area that were describing this man of the bush Which I think maybe is more likely for some of the disappearances. Like we talked about the Orang Pandek being very violent, even though it's short in stature, wears clothes, and should be like this timid thing hiding in the woods. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a quote from Graves here, as was described to him by an indigenous elder, rather short in stature and to be quite strong with a beard and usually wearing simple clothing. The name given to this creature is the Nook Look or Man of the Bush. Hmm. Yeah, so mountain men, bushmen, yeah. And, you know, the first sighting was in 1964, like I said, near Fort Simpson. 1964. Yeah, so a little bit more modern. Mm -hmm. Um, But he wrote about this to Sanderson, and they started communicating about it, and there was speculation between them that, yeah, that might be, it's not a Sasquatch-like creature, but it's sort of a relic for sure. It could Mm -hmm. be responsible for some disappearances. But it's like all these sightings of, and and just weird stuff happening, like the sightings of these like weird, like pendek things of the, of Canada, like uh, the Wahila headless missing people. How does this all tie together? How do, how do we, how do we, how do we tie this all together here? Moving down to the end. I mean, is this place just cursed? Like, is Is this, is it just, is this just like really like hell on earth in a way? It's beautiful, but it's going to devour you. Is it cursed? Does it just have some sort of natural aura to it that is just some sort of spookiness because like this area and the mountains in the area known as headless valley like this has been referred to by even the most seasoned mountain men as like a very eerie place and like when you mentioned the howling winds that can kind of come up and the shrieks and things like that Mm -hmm. it almost reads like dead mountain to me yeah whereas like this is a place where a lot of people yeah right like you can go with competing sort of like interests with like the native angle where they're saying like don't go to these certain areas Mm -hmm. where it's like okay well you're probably just trying to protect your hunting areas but at the same time it could be a legit warning like Mm -hmm. you know like we've been to these places do not go dead mountain right do not visit this area because it has something that makes people just on edge and i think that could be it could be totally explained away as something totally like a natural phenomena like like yeah you were saying infrasound and things like that that can produce acoustics that literally put people on edge and, drive and, them insane. and can drive them insane can just make them want to just ev- evacuate the area or can make them do unexplainable things that are just don't decapitate sense. people perhaps who knows I, think I don't know in my heart of hearts though i think a lot of the decapitations are just a result of greed and um a lot of people thinking that they're in a lawless land and that they can do whatever they want who, who's going to come track them down for this mm-hmm. the only thing that i would like if i was going to commit a crime like that i'd be like well if i'm going out with buddy guy it's me and him and i'm the only one that comes back <laughs> it's not very suspicious. see this is why i don't necessarily agree <laughs> but you with could that. always change your name you could take on a whole new identity you could do whatever this is like again the wild wild west era of canada it's you true know? it's true it just seems cumbersome and like unnecessary but is i mean it, hey i don't know is like, it, it more or less cumbersome to try and be a legit stand-up citizen in a, in an era where it's there's not a lot of the safety nets that are in place i, for I totally get what you're now. saying you know i guess what, I mean? what i'm saying is like if that's the case which is true human nature it's like how come there's not headless valleys everywhere like this 
this just happened to be what happened in this particular place. Yeah. It took on this name, this moniker, and and is associated with all this other high strangeness. It's like, yeah, you mentioned like the OK Corral gunfight thing we were watching yesterday, the recreation and mm-hmm. the Hurt Brothers and stuff like that. It's like a lot of violence happening in other places. People mm-hmm. weren't necessarily found decapitated or headless or whatever. Not necessarily decapitated. Maybe it was just gnawed off. Hey, actually, you know what? If it's gnawed off by a, a Wahila, that's decapitated. You're decapitated by a Wahila. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. It's not, he's not using a machete, but mm-hmm. it's the same principle. True. So we can say Headless Valley for that too, is, I think. <laughs> there were skulls missing. There the were skulls missing. The guy that was found in his cabin was probably the, like, strangest to me. Because, like, that is just bizarre. Because, like, the original theory that I brought up right away was like, okay, well, maybe he was headless because they didn't want to find the bullet that killed him. They didn't mm-hmm. want it to be traced back to the gun that was maybe pool fields or whoever right. else's. But, again, if they knew he died by gunshot wound obviously the gunshot was evident on his body somewhere else. So why was his head not there? And why was, like, if he was in the cabin, why take the head? Oh, well, no, that's a lot of work. I that's feel what like I'm saying. No, I, I was just going to say, I just had this thought pop into my head. Like, well, what if he had gold teeth? What if there was, like, valuable gold in his head? You're going to take the whole head. You're not going to take, you're going to yank out the teeth. Yeah. You're not going to decapitate someone. You have to be a sicko to want to do that's that. That's what I'm saying. I guess it could be people <laughs> dri- are driven insane. Well, what and if there was, like, one guy that was, like, a Dexter that just, like, decided to make that his area? He's just out there living in the bush? Yeah. I mean, I guess that's possible. Maybe one day they'll uncover, like, some random-ass cabin in the middle of nowhere, and it'll have, like, all of these skulls on, like, stakes, and, like, it'll be like, this was the guy! See, that is the, that's, that I think would be the, the, the coolest, spookiest, scariest, yeah. like, Hollywood movie script ready version of like a theory for this valley that somewhere deep deep in the valley because of these stories from the Dene of this like head hunting mm-hmm. or extremely aggressive like naha something adjacent to them like it isn't i'm not saying it's like remnants of the ancient naha still hiding out there through some portal or something coming in and decapitating people <laughs> but something like that though you know what i mean that's like an episode of the lost world right there oh i love it <laughs> You know, if we go back to the whole idea of, like, was this legend building? Is this part of, like, protecting the pristine area and things like that? Like, this is from the McLean's article again, and he says here uh, that Pierre Berton, he says, Early stories of the Nahani region were circulated by Indians who feared that white men would disturb their hunting grounds. Friendly now, but still deeply superstitious, the Indians have helped to advance the legends about the valley, and they have been aided and abetted by glib-tongued prospectors who lacked to spin yarns, <laughs> end quote. So it's like, you know, yeah. like, the, it's, it's a great story to tell around the campfire, right? How many different versions of these stories were told and spun over the years over, you know, countless different parties and groups and, you know, like, the, the, the guides that would be in the valley, like, helping these people that come in to find their gold stakes and things. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it all comes back. It's all full circle, a lot of it. And again, right, it's just what is the nugget? Where's yeah. that gold nugget of truth? I just, I, and I, I find, I love envisioning, like, it's, it's dark. I just say, I love envisioning this. Everyone's going to think Andrew's messed up. But, <laughs> like, from a, like, a screenwriting perspective, like, the idea of, like, these really early non-Indigenous prospectors, trappers, whatever, being out there, getting lost, or inexplic- like inexplicably usually, right? They'd be just like, how am I lost now? Like, I it shouldn't be. It's like the and ritual. Then, and ex- that's mm-hmm. exactly what I'm picturing, right? And then they're sitting there, and then something happens, they disappear, and then we're just left speculating here. And the energies and the forces of the valley 
have devoured them the in whatever horror. way. Mm-hmm. And maybe the ones that we found headless, like it didn't quite get to their full, you know, devouring, if you will. They didn't they didn't vanish. It's very much like the ritual and there's something there taking these people. Is there a spirit of the Nahani? Yeah, something like that. And maybe it takes a form of the Wahila in some aspects and that's sort of similar like we've made the reference the comparison to skinwalkers and those types of transformations and we do have that loose connection to the navajo dialect which is Mm. which is strange Mm -hmm. yeah no it's all very loose but it's all very interesting yeah i i feel like that's kind of my final thought on this i don't know if you have any final thoughts i think that there's just really like strange ancient forces at work and then i think so and i think it all comes back to the knowledge and the history of the Dene people so that's why like things to keep our eyes on there's that documentary by the filmmaker mark mcpherson and he, like I said, he's obtained permission to record the stories of these Dene elders. And who knows what's going to come of that. I'm just really intrigued by this project. So yes. I want to keep, keep uh, yeah. tabs on that one. Yeah, we'll definitely be doing a follow-up because there's some more to dig into here. Yeah. And, uh, and, and like we've been doing recently on the show, there's kind of like five mini shows packed into one show with true crime and monsters and cryptozoology and all kinds of stuff. But this was such a great topic. Uh, so thank you so much again uh, to uh, Brennan Carey for recommending it on Facebook. And uh, yeah, come hit us up on the socials, you guys. We want to hear what you uh, have to say uh, about the, the Headless Valley or just the show in general. We definitely uh, want to communicate with you. So come follow us on on Facebook at Into the Portal Podcast, on Instagram at Into the Portal Podcast as well. Hit up the network at Strange Pods on Instagram. And um, right now, our website is down for the network, but that'll be back up in a little bit. But uh, mm-hmm. Into the Portal.com is our homepage for, for the show here, ITP. So you guys can go check us out there. And if you haven't yet, please take a second uh, to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us with the rankings. Mm-hmm. Yes. And just hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, but you do listen to the show regularly or, you Another great thing is like if you have one episode of Into the Portal that you've just like, it's just like made your day or whatever. If you share that with someone else, like that helps the show a lot. Word of mouth is the way that we grow. Totally. And uh, yeah, just through all of the support of our listeners. And yeah. we're so happy to have so many new patrons join us on this journey. And all of our producers, we've got... Uh, Adam uh, Kellums, we've got Stanley Capazario, we've got Nightwing. Caca. And uh, Kitsune as well. And Kitsune is our new... I really hope I got that right. I know. <laughs> oh, which which is Japanese for uh, fox, I believe. Mm-hmm. Which Very is, cool. Which is really cool. Uh, yeah, you guys are amazing. And uh, yeah, stay tuned for a new Patreon episode uh, com- coming out soon. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys, we made it out of the valley. We made we it did. out of the headless valley. Still have our heads. <laughs> for now. <laughs> for now. Well, until next time on Into the Portal. Your gateway to the bizarre. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. 
Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.